0: Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now nearing the end of our third season and very excited that we're still around. Uh, but we're also very excited to continue to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, and heart issues and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on health and environmental impacts of our food production, agriculture, and land use systems. And specifically, we're going to talk about the global agriculture, how it's under pressure as it relates to our health and the environment. Now, by 2050, it is said that we'll need to feed 2 billion more people. So I ask myself, and you probably do too, how can we do that without overwhelming what we are constantly being told is already an overstressed planet and perhaps overwhelming our pocketbooks as well? Well, today's guest has written that the numbers of hungry people are rising again with hunger concentrated in fragile conflict and climate affected regions where production and trade are also disrupted. Concerns are growing daily that the environmental costs and health impacts associated with our current model of agricultural production are acceptably high and most likely unsustainable. The spread of the global coronavirus pandemic in 2020 has also revealed some shocking vulnerabilities that we're all seeing in our food and agricultural systems at all levels all across the board. Today, however, the convergence of multiple stresses, that is conflict, climate change, environmental degradation, changing diets and a global health crisis is challenging the current model of productivity centered investment that has primarily guided uh, the United States and global efforts on agricultural food systems for the last 60 years. Countries around the world have enacted a wave of export curves on food since the start of the Ukraine war. Uh, And that's a trend that economists say risk aggravating shortages and global food price inflation. On nearly every continent, nations have put new restrictions and bans on products, ranging all the way from wheat and corn and edible oils to beans, lentils and sugar. And Lebanon has even banned the export of ice cream and beer. Now, over the last century, the global population has quadrupled. In 1915, there were 1.8 billion people in the world, and today, according to the most recent estimate by the United Nations, there are 7.3 billion people, and we may reach approximately 9.7 billion by the year 2050. Now, this growth, along with rising incomes in developing countries, which cause dietary changes such as eating more protein and meat, are driving up global food demand. Food demand is expected to increase anywhere between 59% to 98% by the year 2050. And this will shape agricultural markets in ways that we've not seen before and probably that we've not even imagined. Farmers worldwide will need to increase crop production, either by increasing the amount of agricultural land to grow crops on, or by enhancing productivity on existing agricultural lands through fertilizer and irrigation and perhaps adopting some new methods like precision farming, all of which I'm sure carry varying degrees of environmental cost. Now, the ecological and social trade-offs of clearing more land for agriculture are often high, particularly in the tropics. And right now, crop yields, that is the amount of crops harvested per unit of land cultivated, are growing too slowly to meet this anticipated demand for food in the future many other factors from climate change to urbanization to a lack of investment will also make it challenging to produce enough food for our needs. There's also strong consensus among our researchers and academics that climate change driven by water scarcity, rising global temperatures, and extreme weather will have severe long-term effects on crop yields. These are expected to impact many agricultural regions, especially Especially those that are close to the equator. For example, the Brazilian state of Mato Grosso, one of the most important agriculture regions worldwide, may face an 18 to 23 percent reduction in soy and corn output by 2050 due to climate change. The Midwestern U.S., also, and eastern Australia. Also, two other globally important regions may also see substantial decline in agricultural output due to this extreme heat caused by climate change. Yet, some places are expected to initially, that is, benefit from climate change. Countries stretching over the northern latitudes, mainly China, Canada, and Russia, are forecasted to experience longer and warmer growing seasons in certain areas. Russia, which is already a major grain exporter, has a huge untapped production potential because of large crop yield gaps. And that means uh, when we talk about the gap, that's a difference between the current Yields and the potential yields and they also have a lot of widespread abandoned farmland uh, more than 40 million acres which is an area that's larger than Germany and this is due to following the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 so Russia arguably has the most agricultural opportunity in the world but at this point who's going to be willing to depend on Russia for anything. Now, when we think about threats to the environment, we tend to picture in our minds cars and smokestacks, not our dinner. But the truth is, our need for food poses one of the biggest dangers to the planet. Agriculture is among the greatest contributors to global warming, emitting more greenhouse gases than all of our cars, trucks, trains and airplanes Combined. And this is largely from methane released by cattle and rice farms, as well as nitrous oxide from fertilized fields and carbon dioxide from the cutting down of the rainforest in order to grow more crops or to raise livestock. Farming is the thirstiest user of our precious water supplies, and it's a major polluter as runoff from fertilizers and manure disrupts fragile lakes, rivers, and coastal ecosystems not only in the U.S. but totally across the globe. Agriculture also accelerates the loss of biodiversity. As we cleared areas of grassland and forest to develop more farms, we've lost crucial habitat, making agriculture a major driver of wildlife extinctions. Now, the environmental challenges posed by agriculture are huge also, and they'll only become more pressing as we try to meet the growing need for food worldwide In coming years. But sheer population growth isn't the only reason we'll need more food. The spread of prosperity, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on with our guests, but the spread of prosperity across the world, especially in China and India, is driving an increased demand for meat, eggs, and dairy, thereby boosting pressure to grow more corn and soybeans to feed more cattle pigs, and chickens to get all of that meat, eggs, and dairy that our prosperity is demanding. Now, ultimately, the debate over how to address the global food challenge has become polarized as has just about everything in our society today, pitting conventional agriculture and global commerce against local food systems and organic farms. The arguments can be fierce, like our politics, and we seem to be getting more and more divided rather than finding common ground. Those who favor conventional agriculture talk about how modern mechanization, irrigation, fertilizers, and improved genetics can increase yields to help meet this demand. And they're right. Meanwhile, proponents of local and organic farms counter this argument that the world's smaller farmers could increase yields aplenty. And help themselves out of poverty by adopting better techniques that improve fertility without synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, And they're right, too. But human use of land and water for agriculture has not yet peaked. But all evidence points to slowing growth in agriculture productivity, to rapid exhaustion of productive capacity and generation of more and more environmental harm. And even before the outbreak of COVID-19, global food systems were faced with a formidable triple whammy challenge of simultaneously Providing food security and nutrition to a growing global population, ensuring livelihoods of millions of people working along the food chain all the way from farm to fork, and ensuring the environmental sustainability of the agricultural and food production sector. The manner in which food systems absorb, recover, adapt, and transform in response to the shock of COVID 19 will shape their level of resilience and their ability to deliver on the longer term triple challenge. And we're beginning to feel some of this already. Those who study these things say that policies and approaches to address both the dramatic short term shocks, which we're already seeing, and to enhance long term resilience are essential. And those that encourage global food systems, that rather than domestic self-sufficiency, will be more effective at meeting this challenge. Now, this is a lot. But here today to help us unpack and understand this is an expert in this field who I've been quoting quite a bit during this. Our guest today is Emmy Simmons and Emmy is an independent consultant on food and agricultural issues and we're going to go to break now and I'll tell you more about Emmy's expertise. We're going to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years, non mercury, with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, today's show on health and environmental impacts of our food production, agriculture, and land use systems. And today we're focusing on the global agriculture under pressure, health and environmental issues. And as I mentioned before, we went to the break. Our guest today is Emmy Simmons. Emmy is an independent consultant on food and agricultural issues, and she has a long and gloried career at The U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. Emmy is currently serves on the boards of the Global Crop Diversity Trust and DevWorks, as a member of the Global Panel on Agriculture and Food Systems for Nutrition, and she is a non-resident senior advisor to the Food Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Emmy continues to work toward defining and pursuing the goal of food systems transformation providing sustainable healthy diets for all. Welcome, Emmy. We're so glad that you could join us today. And did I get all of that right?
1: Yes, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, that was great.
0: Thank you for for carving out time to be with us. Now, Emmy, until several years ago, many of us of a certain age group never gave any thought to where our food came from. And we were accustomed to only having certain foods available to us at certain times of the year because that's when the crops came in. But now that's all different. And I can remember my first attention paid was when we began to get tropical fruits like mangoes and pineapples and and other stuff from Chile. I remember being a little suspicious of these. However, now that's all part of our daily lives and our daily expectations. We expect to go in the grocery anytime and get any of that tropical fruit that we want. Except of course, we have more of these foods in our local growing seasons. So Emmy Tell us about the history of the globalization of uh, agriculture and food production.
1: Thanks, Bernice. Actually, agriculture has always been globalized, but not involving a lot of trade. It's the last century has been characterized by a giant increase in traded agriculture products. You talked about food products, and of course, that's the kind of, of thing that we experience all the time. But the growth in agricultural trade for food is enormous. The The expansion over the last century has, has been more than five times in the last, even in the last 20 years, uh, trade in food has increased. So it really is this question, of bringing together production from different parts of the world to satisfy consumer demand. I wanted to interrupt you for just a minute, though, Emily,
0: because you said it's always been globalized, but it's what's recent or fairly recent is is trade. Can you explain that so we understand it?
1: Oh, sure. Obviously, everybody needs to eat every day, right? So going back to the days of, I don't know, Cro-Magnon man, people have produced food or collected food or processed food. Um, for their survival around the world. But often that food didn't go very far away from the farm. So the producer produced the food. Much of it was eaten by the family. Whatever there was left was traded. If somebody specialized in onions or something, that went into the market. But that has really gradually changed what is called subsistence agriculture, which is a farm family producing what they eat. That has pretty much disappeared with very few exceptions as people have come to rely upon markets even locally to be able to have people outside of the cities producing food that then gets traded into the cities you know within a within a short regional market but the globalization of food that is the trade of food around the world really has increased since about the 1950s 1960s during the both World Wars, World War One and World War Two, there was a great increase in shipping, and be, shipping became a much more affordable thing. And after World War Two, especially like in places like the United States, Australia, Europe, there were new technologies, you know, better me- mechanics, better better breeds of crops, more use of fertilizer, and this led to the production of excess particularly of grains, which could then be sent to countries which didn't have enough grain to really support their growing population. And over time, that trade in food products, raw commodities like wheat or rice, but also um, trade in in processed products, potato chips and guacamole, all of these things started to cross international boundaries. And as people got more incomes, as incomes have grown around the world, people have as you said, uh, seeing these things in the markets and said, oh gosh, this is really great. I think I'd like to try bananas. I'd like to try grapes in the off season. So people were released from that dependence on what they could produce by themselves, what could be produced in their local region, the seasonality that goes along with that. And they were able to overcome that and get the variety that you can get in terms of, of food when there is global trade. So I think we've seen literally a transformation of the food system over the last century, century and a half, which has been extraordinary. I mean, I think it has surpassed everyone's, everyone's expectations. Food has become more affordable overall, and the, the vast range of choices of food has increased. On the other hand, now I'm gonna put my nutrition hat on, the diversity of, and go back to the point that you made on global crop diversity, is that the diversity of products in the market has actually shrunk. People used to eat other kinds of grains, fonio, casks, have you heard of them? Mm-hmm. But now people are, are eating more maize, more rice, more wheat, which account for a great deal of grain consumption. Vegetables, greens that used to be gathered out in the forest are no longer gathered. People, in fact, purchase food um, grains produced under irrigated circumstances. Soon we're going to be eating in the United States, at least in Europe. We're going to be eating greens so that have been produced in urban, tall buildings with artificial light, no soil, and extremely precision-provided water.
0: Yeah, we have so one of those here move. here in our area that I was just um, there you go. Uh, looking at. That's, it, it's, it's a that's whole be the
1: future.
0: Yeah, farm, indoor, grown in these little pots that are like towers or something.
1: Yeah, trays or whatever. But yeah, one, one of the things that people don't realize, for example, is that the very small country of the Netherlands is the world's second largest exporter of food. Not, the U.S. is still number one, but Netherlands, they have no space. Almost everything is grown in these intensive um, mechanized greenhouses, which are all over the country. So I think we're seeing that transformation in the food system. The question is, looking forward, whether in fact that transformation is going to produce the variety of, of nutrients that make up our diet, the variety of different kinds of food, whether we can do it with the greenhouse gas emissions costs that we're experiencing now as food is not only just transported, but it's chilled, it's processed, it's kept in a frozen or cool state. All of that requires energy, and that's the question as to whether we can we can afford that going forward.
0: A big Already question that pops up in my mind as you describe that is, in terms of this trade, what are we gaining and what are we losing with that?
1: What we're losing, I think, is perhaps what people is on people's minds, sort of top of mind. Um, what we're losing is a lot of crop diversity. We're we're losing. That sort of positive economic interaction of a local production sector, a local retail market sector, and the f- diversity of fresh products that, in fact, can be gotten. In the United States, we actually consume fewer fresh fruits and vegetables produced in the United States today than we did 40 or 50 years ago because we import those products from Central America and Mexico and there's a reason why Mexico is the, is the source of most of the avocados that we eat in the United States. They're easy to transport, they can be gotten here early. That, the loss that we have is that the environmental diversity has decreased, the number of jobs in agriculture has decreased, small towns have seen the decrease in opportunities in food and agriculture, and the range of the diet many people characterize now that's available really emphasizes sugar, fat, and salt, rather than fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, high-nutrient dairy products produced locally. Um, And so there's, for the consumer, there's a lot more ease, a lot more access, but from the local economy perspective, there's been a big transformation, away from a diverse, nutrient-healthy, production system to one that is is less diverse, less probably less healthy and probably less generating less, generating fewer jobs and, and fewer local community kinds of opportunities.
0: indeed, but I have to think that some communities are as you mentioned, some communities are losing jobs but then others are gaining jobs. How is that affecting the producing or the sending sending countries or parts of the world?
1: Well, and it's also and also the jobs that people are getting. As in the United States, people expect that rural kids, when they emigrate, or like me, emigrating from Northern Wisconsin, when they emigrate to an urban area or to um, an urban-based job, will actually be making more income than they were on the farm. And to some extent, as I mentioned, you know, because we purchase commodities from Central America, Mexico. More jobs are created in those countries, but not in the U.S. In the U.S., the jobs tend in agriculture in food and food in agriculture, not just agriculture, but food in agriculture, tend to be in processing, in markets, in retails, in bars, in restaurants, in all those kind of post what we call post-farm but, yeah, But not on,
0: not on the farm, right? We're going to go to break. Right, not on the farm. Yeah. Right, We're going to go to break, Emmy, farm. and we'll be right back with some more of this very interesting information. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on health and environmental impacts of our food production, agriculture, and land use systems. And today we're talking about global agriculture under pressure, how it affects our health and our environment. And we are back with Emmy Simmons, who is just making us much smarter About all of this, Emmy is a senior advisor to the Food Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and she had a very long career with the U.S. Agency for International Development (USAID). Again, thank you so much, Emmy, for being with us today. Now, before the break, uh, we were talking about um, the the kind of the history and getting a—I think for me was a good understanding of the global agriculture and food production system uh, as it relates to the local systems and and how how it all developed. And as we were talking before the break, you were talking about how, you know, it's affecting the producing or the sending countries, but also others who are perhaps losing production. And so we're the recipient country. And I think you you made mention of how it's affecting wages and, and, and jobs and things like that. What other types of effects would it be having on the recipient countries?
1: Uh, countries that are importing food um, sort of import two categories of food. Let me just put it that way. Mm-hmm. One is staple products, rice, wheat to make bread, corn, which is kind of a basic for, for food in many African countries, as well as feed for animals. Soy, same thing, uh, feed for animals, as well as uh, a product when it's dried that, that is, contributes to the protein quality of food. The U.S. is actually a very large exporter. You mentioned Russia in your setup piece, um, Brazil. We are large exporting countries of what are called staple foods, that is, grains and soybeans and, to some extent, other kinds of, of oils. But the other category of food that, that countries import are processed foods. And the U.S. is a consumer, is a producer of processed foods, but we don't export quite as much of that. Other countries, in fact, seek to increase their production and capacity to process food, Juice, fruit juices, tomato paste, um, sugar, uh, tea, other kinds of products. The trade, the global trade, which, as I like, explained before, has expanded enormously in the last 50 years or so, that allows countries to import both kinds of things. That is food, grains, staple grains for consumption, grains and other products for animal feed, as well as processed food. What we've seen is the globalization of diet, as we've seen the globalization of trade. And we've also seen what I've referred to before is the shift of jobs and incomes from the production sector, that is just on the farm, mm-hmm. in the forest, um, into, Jobs related to marketing, processing, storage, marketing, um, bars, restaurants, all of that whole post-farm gate segment. and that area of jobs and income has ex- has really expanded greatly. So when we look at developing countries, low income countries, middle income countries in Asia, in Latin America and Africa, we see that they are undergoing that transformation as well jobs, people aren't employed as much on the farm, but gradually there is more employment being created off the farm. That is in transport, in market management, in processing, in restaurants, retail outlets. So we're just seeing a transformation. Now, the question that everybody has is, is that transformation a good thing in terms of a sustainable, system that provides healthy diets for all. And, and there's some questions. Is it? And there's some questions about that. There are questions about it. No, basically the answer is no.
0: Be- and I have to think too with with workers or laborers leaving the farm and we have to have them at the farm. That's where everything starts. There won't be a need for the bar workers, the food processors and what have you. So what is that causing? Is that moving us toward more the industrial farming or Or does it uh, loom for shortages in the future or what?
1: It's moving us to realization that market disruption, as we've just seen in the the Ukraine war and as we've seen repeatedly with climate crises um, around the world, that once the market is disrupted, it contributes a huge amount of risk and uncertainty, not just for producers, but for consumers as well. Trade across borders. You know, makes that a little bit better if there's a failure in Australia, the people in western Kansas and perhaps don't have the same climate conditions and they can fill in with wheat or or sorghum or whatever. But what we're seeing is that when major markets now, as we've become more dependent on these global markets, as these markets are disrupted, the ripple effects of that disruption are enormous and they go all around the world. And it's difficult to sort of recover from that in the short term. Climate change, of course, is existential and is making that recovery even much more difficult so that when a place experiences, for example, a flood, people lose their production, but they also lose their houses. They also have to invest in sort of recovery. And they don't therefore have the money to be able to sort of continue to purchase food in the market. So you have, you call, you talked before about a triple whammy that actually had about five whammies mm-hmm. involved in it. <laughs> I think that in fact, that combination of climate change, market disruption, income disruption, income and livelihood disruption, as well as kind of marginal health and healthcare conditions, those kind of add up to a situation in which food and the future of food is really at stake.
0: Indeed. And you mentioned two things that I want to talk about a little bit more. Um, you said that other countries seek to be more to do more food processing. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Is that where the money is? Or why are they seeking to do that? Because we over here in the U.S. eat so much processed food or what?
1: Partly that. Partly they like it, right? As I said, we've all become addicted to sugar, fat, and salt. Um, a friend of mine was doing a trek in Nepal sort of area of Mount Everest, right? And he reported being in very small, very remote villages and kids coming up and saying, wow, at least we have some food. And they had packets of potato chips <laughs> way up in the call. Oh, my. And the kids thought those were great. A lot of kids that I know when I was working in Africa thought that that cookies were the best thing. Cookies, Coke, you know, other kinds of sweets and 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 tasty foods, right? So that's a little of the cutting edge. I just had a conversation with a, um, an economist in Ghana who was looking at the introduction of Western uh, fast food, such as Kentucky fried chicken or the local knockoffs. And he said, they're really just a status symbol. They're not really food uh, because people want to eat that food because it makes them modern, it tastes good. It shows that when they entertain their friends, that they in fact have wealth and they're creating things. And plus, as I said, all of that kind of processed food, you know, fast food, that creates local jobs as well. So people appreciate that. It's modern, it's convenient. So there's this huge transformation going on already. We're we're way down the track on this. But what we found is that just increasing trade just increasing incomes nationally and internationally on on a basis of average incomes doesn't really result in good nutrition and that's where a lot of emphasis is being directed now is that while we are producing enough food and i heard this at a seminar this morning we're producing enough food not everybody has equal access to that food and therefore we have a spectrum of malnutrition, ranging from hunger, that is not getting enough food to eat at all, to obesity, which is a growing and rising problem in many developing countries, in which a certain class of of the population can afford to eat more meat, can afford to eat more beverages, beverages, and all of a sudden, we have populations that are obese on the one hand, and populations in that same country, perhaps even in the same city, who are hungry, on the other hand. So we have a diversity right now of nutritional conditions, which is very worrisome. So when I said um, sustainable, healthy diets for all, the for all is really an important part of it.
0: You mentioned globalization of diet, and I think you talked about that a little bit, but Mm -hmm. explain that to us a little bit more.
1: What it means? Is there used to be in the old days, I think you referred mm-hmm. to that, um, diets that were very much locally based, were very reflective of local cultures, local practices, and local sort of opinions about food. Those opinions and those practices and those cultural indicators have all shifted somewhat. I think you know, people talk about, uh, in this case, every in in, in Asia. People say if they haven't eaten rice, they haven't eaten. That's still true, and that used to be true a long time ago. But now they're eating other things such as potato chips along with their rice, right? So, as in, and as income incomes rise, people have more choice. They can afford to eat more imported food. They can afford more expensive kinds of food. As you pointed out, protein foods, fruits, vegetables, ice cream—just a huge amount of change going on. And the question is whether, in fact, that equity of access and affordability is resulting in, in better health.
0: It's also interesting how prosperity demands less healthy food. Uh, and we'll talk more about that on the other side. We're going to go to break now and we'll be right back with Emmy Simmons, who is truly making us all more smart about food production and agriculture. Thank you, Emmy. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And their other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non mercury, looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is born certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today, to our show today on health and environmental impacts of our food production, agriculture, and land use systems. We're talking about global agriculture under pressure, how it affects our health and environment. And we are back with Emmy Simmons, who is a senior advisor to the Food Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And she spent a long time at the USAID, so she really knows this stuff because she's really making us smarter about it all. So again, thank you, Emmy, for joining us today. Now, we talked about a lot of things, but I want to bring up something that everybody knows about, and that is bananas. It's one of those foods that I think everyone in the U.S. realizes comes from somewhere other than here. Yet, it's so prevalent in our society and at a low price. So tell us about that history of bananas, uh, because I have to think that they were one of the the first or earliest global food production items. Why is this and how is this?
1: Bananas, a great great choice. Um, Bananas grow in the tropics. Even with urban farms in New York or Chicago or Dallas, we are not going to grow bananas. So by definition, agronomic definition, bananas must be produced in warm and and damp, moist climates. So that's where bananas started. All across the tropics of the world, there there were hundreds of varieties of bananas. However, bananas were quickly seized upon as being uh, a product, a food, that really had a market beyond the tropics. And companies like Dole invested in the tropics in building banana plantations, large farms, scientifically managed, and this this is the diversity story of the bananas commercially marketed and commercially marketed generally across international boundaries, two varieties of bananas are produced, that's it. So if you go to the Philippines, where I was a Peace Corps volunteer many, many years ago, you could get red bananas and small bananas and sweet bananas and, and cooking bananas and all kinds of bananas, right? But if you go to your local supermarket in the United States, I guarantee you, you will find one variety of bananas. That's it. Because that's what it makes sense to produce commercially. They're produced, many of the US bananas are produced in Central America on large internationally uh, plantations owned by international corporations like Dole. They are commercially produced, not on small farms for export. They are picked mostly green and subjected in the shift to a ripening process so that when they arrive at your supermarket, wherever you live in the United States, they will look pretty much the same. Now, a little bit of green on the end, and they, they're they Cavendish bananas. And so they, bananas are a wonderful story. They need to be cool, they rot very fast, they have high rates of waste, so that 100 pounds of bananas produced in Guatemala may end up as consumption, 30 pounds of bananas, right? Something like that. I I don't have the exact numbers. But I think bananas are a great example of both how the process of food production has become uh, internationalized, how it has contributed to a kind of dietary pleasure. I won't say demand, but a a dietary pleasure, that people like eating bananas, and a way has been found using science, using agronomic production technology to make them available.
0: Now let me ask you this, though. What kinds of things could happen to make us not have the pleasure of enjoying bananas?
1: Oh, lots of things. Um, The first thing is disease. The varieties of bananas have already been, Um, very much attacked by different kinds of diseases, and science has to keep up, keep in front of that with developing new varieties that are resistant to those diseases. Uh, Disruptions in shipping can affect bananas because they come in from places outside of the U.S. We, We don't grow bananas in the U.S. The possibility or the cost of providing chilling and compensating for waste in grocery stores is another thing that can disrupt it. One may find in in the future that the prices of bananas are higher. If you're in a country like Nigeria or the Philippines, where there traditionally are hundreds of varieties of bananas, you are likely to see that there are fewer and fewer varieties. And farmers will be encouraged, to the extent they're producing bananas for commerce, to produce bananas that are harder, that have thicker skins, that are less disrupted when they're transported so that the waste levels are, lost, are reduced.
0: How could climate change affect our banana supply?
1: Well, the heat, the heat complex that is associated with, with um, climate change, the redistribution of pests, which we're already seeing pests and diseases of various agricultural crops is changing even as we speak. If we're if people are not investing in research, I mean, bananas are a case where the research has largely been in the private sector, but in other for other commodities, where research in the public sector is needed, the research expenditures, particularly in Europe and the US are not keeping up with the sort of rate of change of stresses associated with climate change. So climate change could have a huge impact in terms of what can be produced in Central America, a good source of coffee for the United States, beverage, I guess, not exactly, a food. But coffee used to be produced down to something like 2,000 feet above sea level. And now, because of climate change, it can only be produced at higher elevations. So it's changed completely. Brazil has developed entirely new varieties of coffee because the areas where it used to be grown— uh, traditional varieties were grown, can no longer um, support it because the, the pest complex and the heat is too much for it. So we're going to see huge changes. You mentioned that, you know, the, where, the range of geographies in which various crops can be grown is shifting even now as temperatures become higher. Some areas in Canada, for example, are going to be producing foods that they could not produce 20, 25 years ago just because the nighttime temperatures are higher. Korea, they've been producing apples and other temperate climate sort of products in an area in the northeast section of South Korea. But the nighttime temperatures have risen over the last 20 years in that area, and they are very worried now that they're going to lose all of their traditional apple variety.
0: Does that mean that as, as global warming progresses that we might be able to grow our own bananas here in the U.S.?
1: I, I doubt it, although I think some folks in Florida are beginning to think about that. But but again, it's a question of having the right kind of space, the amount of water. One of the things that has happened in the United States, for example, is that California, Arizona, and New Mexico have become major producers of hay for dairy cows. And you say, what? It's the Midwest that's the dairy hub, right? I come from Wisconsin. but. The people out in the West have developed methods of uh, irrigating intensively cultivated hay and they ship it to the Midwest. Whether, in fact, the Colorado River is going to be able to support that sort of production for much longer is one of the big questions under debate. So, yeah, the question of water, temperature, soil quality. They all combine to define the possibilities for the future.
0: Talk about how COVID has changed things and things that we have seen that we hadn't seen before that we've learned as a result of the pandemic.
1: Great question. Great question. I think that we have learned an enormous amount, not all of it pleasant, in the last few years. And we, the market disruption story is kind of the leader, right? All of a sudden, people stop going to restaurants. They stop going to bars. And all of a sudden, a huge part, segment of the food system kind of just under pressure paid. We're also finding that because of the shipping disruptions associated with COVID, the fact that pe- there weren't as many people working, that people were work, you know, not in the same places, that we had competition with other countries that we hadn't seen before, is that, in fact, Certain products just were not available or they were available, but at a much higher cost. I mean, people are talking about food price inflation every day now. We all care, obviously, about this. I think the other thing that we have noted is that um, there is a relationship between nutritional status and healthy status and status of one's health. And in fact, during the COVID epidemic, people noticed that people who were Health compromise, but also obese or heavily overweight, were not people who tolerated or recovered from COVID very well. So I think it again was just one of those wake-up calls. We already know that that bad, poor diets are very strongly associated with rising rates of diabetes, with cardiovascular disease issues, and with other kinds, some certain kinds of cancers. I'm right? not exactly sure which ones. That in a way that I want to <laughs> explain now, but. We found that during the the COVID epidemic that in fact people's general health and their dietary status really did make a difference in terms of their ability to recover.
0: Indeed, I think so, it, was, not, a to, it, was, it a wake- was a wake-up call. It was definitely a wake-up about health and nutrition leading us back to agriculture. And 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 hopefully people uh, can realize that that it is important. And Amy, you have really helped us i think drill down and understand the importance of this global agricultural system and why we, we must care because it comes down to our own health and wellness, nutrition, well-being, and existence, really. So thank you so much, Emmy. You've made us much smarter today, and we look forward to you joining us uh, again to talk more about this. And thank you for listening in today to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line. So that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you for listening today, and join us again next week as we talk more about our agriculture and food production systems. Thank you.